Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so excited today to be joined by the wonderful Laura Haddock to talk all about Downton Abbey and New Era. And, you know, I, I loved this description that you've mentioned in terms of, of reading the script for this and how it's a really different experience in reading a script where you know the world, you know so many of the characters, you know a lot of that history. Um, and so I was really interested when you were reading the script and looking at this character of, of Myrna, um, you know, what was that difference in how you started to be able to formulate her in, in your head differently, even just in that first read through knowing the world and knowing the tonality of the space that she was going to be stepping into? Yeah, exactly. You're right, because I, I already had an image of the rooms that I was going to be playing in and had or, you know, familiarized myself with the energy of the characters that I'd be interacting with just as a viewer. So it's, it was a really interesting experiment, I guess, at the beginning to be reading a script when you're so informed. Um, and so, you know, that opening shot when Myrna comes out of the car and she's stepping onto the, onto the driveway and she's walking into Highclere. I had a really visceral image of what that was going to look like, feel like, and be like. And then when you actually do it, you kind of, oh, yeah, I had this. Coming in. I had I had this um, image in my mind when I was reading the script and now I'm here and it's playing out and it kind of, you know, it, it feels how I imagined it to feel. It was, um, it was, it was nice and it felt comforting because there are so many things that you're trying to process and work out when you're reading something and you're getting to know a character. Actually, if your environment that you're playing in and the other characters are already exist, it leaves you a lot of space just to dive, dive straight into the character and how she would feel in this environment. Yeah. And the script also so gives a lot of kind of little inflections of details of her backstory. You know, we learn about her sister that she was really close to who'd passed away. We learn about kind of how she got into the entertainment industry being spotted by a talent scout. And so we get those little elements of, of backstory to build on, which I was also interested in how that really gave you a foundation of details, but then also a lot of freedom to really create a lot of what her backstory was in terms of both her family, her upbringing, and kind of the journey that she'd had through the entertainment industry up to the point where we meet her in the film mm, exactly so the information that I had that other characters had talked about as you said were the fact that she lost her sister um, to the Spanish flu and you know evidently she was growing up in a family who couldn't afford any sort of medical care and so that was inevitable that if somebody got Spanish flu that they would die from it and to lose a sister that young um, is obviously going to inform a, inform a person. Her, her dad was a, a market stall seller in the south of London. So he would have been, you know, up early out working the market. So those are the sorts of people that she would have grown up with. And that sort of, you know, that was, yeah, that was just the, that was the world that she was, was, was growing up in. And it felt in complete contrast with where she was when I met her, yet she still felt completely tied to that and to her past and, and completely informed by that. Um, and so there was this really kind of, I felt she, she had imposter syndrome and whenever, you know, 
I and then she was obviously scouted and she was scouted for her looks right so it was an aesthetic draw um and she was never particularly appreciated or respected for anything that she had to say or any of her opinions and even her voice her speaking voice was frowned upon and talked about in in and you know talked about in a really negative way so there was this woman who was clearly you know beautiful in other people's opinion but they had zero interest in what was going on inside what does that do to somebody that's you know that's so debilitating to not be able to open your mouth and and feel confident in not only what you're saying but also how you sound and then throw her into somewhere like High Clear when she's surrounded by very upper class people who love the sound of their own voices and are very confident with what they're saying and have had a great education um some very powerful particularly powerful women in that house um and she has all this power and she has all this success and she has all this glory. But the only thing she probably really wants to do is respected for what she wants to say. And I can imagine that, you know, well, in fact, I, I did so much, re- so much research that I, I kind of know this to be true, that, the, that there, there was a real coupling effect in the 20s when she was working as a silent movie star and you were coupled off with an actor and then you would produce a lot of films just you two together so you would come as a pair and the man would often do the talking he would be the one who would be at the party doing the talking and she'd be in the back you know she'd be stood behind looking beautiful and looking like she was really enjoying herself but he was the voice and so this whole thing of you know expression and finding your voice and it was just amplified when all of a sudden she went from doing silent film and overnight that film that she was doing was being turned into a talkie. It was the thing that she'd feared for so many years. But, but you know, but having said that, an extremely outwardly confident person wasn't afraid to talk in these situations right she had one eye on it she wasn't afraid to say her opinion or you know if she was asked a question she'd answer she seemed loud and brash and bold but on the inside what was going on of just massive fear of her career ending and also how she was being perceived in social situations yeah it was a real like yeah, I find it so interesting what you were just talking about in terms of, of the coupling off with a male actor and them very much being the voice in a lot of situations. Because when you come into the film, there's actually several scenes where we're seeing you and we're getting this kind of illusion of the movie star before we ever hear what that voice sounds like from her. Um, you know, and even just when she first meets Lord Grantham and just kind of like coyly giggles. And so how did you approach going into a lot of those scenes at the beginning where she's kind of probably quite intentionally not saying anything out loud yet, partly because that's kind of the social order and partly because she knows that there's a power and a command that she has before she opens her mouth and people change their perspective on her. Yes, because she was employed and respected and revered for the way she looked. So that was always the thing that she sold first. So that was, that was the way that she, yeah, that was, that was the way that she garnered respect, that she, she had her status in the room, that she'd learned that that was the only way to position herself in any situation was to make sure that people were completely like taken back by the way she looked taken aback 
um, yeah, whilst holding this voice inside. <laughs> and it was, it's such an interesting, it's a, it's, it was a really interesting multi-layered character because on the, on the face of it, you're like, well, well, you know, this is comedy relief. This is light relief. Somebody coming in, it's all just really contrasting to the world that we know at High Clear. And it's, you, you know, big, bold, bright Hollywood. And actually, the more I dove, the more I delved into this character, the more I realised that what she went through at the time that she went through it would have just been completely traumatising. And you know, like in all honesty, the, the end of her career that that you know that would have been her last film because they weren't making silent films anymore, so there was no need for her. She couldn't, she wouldn't have been able to keep up with the change. Um, so yeah, a lot of fear involved there from right from the beginning because she knew this was on the you know on the cusp of, of happening. So from the moment that we meet her in the beginning of the movie, she already knows this information, and then it's confirmed halfway through the film that yes, this is what we're going to do. And um, yeah, the fear involved in that. I mean, you know, of course, I'm. I don't want it to be too <laughs> tragic. It can't be too tragic, but the reality of it is, is that this would have been tragic for her, but we can also, you know, um, take it with a pinch of salt and find the lighter, funnier moments because there are there are lots to be had within that storyline. But I was very keen when Simon Curtis and I, the director, talked a lot about actually how real this situation was for her. Um, I mean, and to that point, you know, Alfred Hitchcock's blackmail was kind of the initial inspiration for that storyline and, and for your character, because that was a film that was being made as a silent film and then redone with sound added. But also yeah. at the same time, you're playing a character that's really reflective and representative of, of, like you were saying, a lot of what women went through at that point and a lot of women who spoke other languages, you know, had accents from other places, other countries that were working in America and then all of a sudden just didn't have careers. And so in knowing that that was the, the reflection of your character and, and the storyline and where it stemmed from, um, how did you kind of determine what that accent and what that that tone of her voice even needed to be in order for the moment the audience hear it to be like, oh, you're never going to work another day in your life because now we have sound in movies, you know, in a way that reflects her background as a character, but also, you know, as you were talking about the comedic elements kind of plays into the comedy of the situation a little bit more. Exactly. So Danielle Lydon and I, who was my vocal coach and has been my vocal coach on lots of different projects that I've worked on, she's so wonderful and brilliant. The first place we start is talking about, um, you know, who this character is, her personality traits, where she's grown up, what she's informed by, you know, the, we, we kind of just dive into the person um, and what's happened to her in her life. And then you kind of look at where she grew up and then you look at the text and you think, OK, these are the these are the things that we need to marker here to earn the. Let's say the, the comedy moment or, you know, so the kind of more technical beats that you need to um, hit and we, you know, it was very clear that it needed to be a really discordant sounding um, kind of shrill uh unapologetic south london accent so then then we went into sort of bbc archives of recordings of um women's voices from kind of the 20s all the way through to the 50s actually we kind of looked at a real big span of these women's voices and these are just women who are being interviewed just 
normal women from the area of London that we were looking at. And um, it's kind of like a podcast. You just listen to them being interviewed and they're just having conversations. They're often talking about like something they're annoyed at um, with their landlord or whatever, you know, and uh, they're just talking lots and getting passionate about things. And so, you know, we, we listened to that and we started listening to a melody and a rhythm and a tone. And it was very important that Myrna's tone was unrecordable. So although in a room it sounds discordant, it would be impossible to record her voice because tonally it was too high. So the level, they didn't have, you know, it was kind of an unsophisticated, immature recording um, equipment when it when sound first starts to be recorded and men's voices recorded much easier because they had a bass tone and it was lower and it was just easy to record and women's voices were really difficult so a lot of the first women on screen who came kind of up at the end of the 20s early 30s who we were who were being recorded on film so in sat in um talkies had very low voices very low kind of husky smoky voices um, so we made sure that Mernus was <laughs> really high <laughs> and um, sharp. I also think it's so impressive that essentially in the film, you have to give two very different styles of performance because you're giving one performance, which is Myrna as a character within the world of Downton Abbey interacting with these other characters. And then there's also, you know, she's in the middle of shooting a film that's in the silent film era. And that relies on gestures and facial expressions and, and that in a very, very different way because it was a completely different style of filmmaking. And in essence, you're doing both of those things within the same scene because it's a film within a film. Um, and so what was a lot of that, that research and really studying and watching the performance style of the silent film era and then finding how that was gonna marry together with your performance of character within singular moments. Yeah, I realised that it wasn't anywhere near as like huge as I thought it. I thought it was, and you know, I thought it was going to be like if you felt sad, you know, you felt sad, and it was enormous. But actually, it wasn't, and I realised, oh, you can turn it down a little bit. But it was a lot of fun. But also, if I'm honest, it was really silly. It got very silly because. <laughs> you were one minute, you were kind of, yeah, just gesturing and being very melodramatic, you know, whilst also not being melodramatic. And then the funniest bit was one of the days I had Simon Curtis directing the film Downton Abbey, A New Era. And then I had Hugh Dancy directing The Gambler, which was the film within the film. And and then I had, um, and, and we kept getting it wrong. And things kept going wrong. And then Michelle, who was voicing it, was there doing the voice that I was mouthing. And I and I was just like, oh my God, guys, this is crazy. <laughs> just hang on a second. And, and I think in one of those moments, I, I think I'm right in saying that what the piece that they used in the film where I say, I can't hear myself think, I've got. I've got her up there doing the words. You've got me coming out of a bush. I think that was just a ad. I think that was just an improvisation moment because it did all feel so mad. But you just have to sort of stay in character and, and feel that, feel how hectic that felt, and feel how Myrna was getting completely overwhelmed with that. And yeah, and that moment was quite organic and came out. And then we all sort of fell about laughing because it was it was a bit like. What is going on? And yeah, it's really fun though. Really silly. We laughed a lot. 
And I'm glad that you were bringing up there the moments where you also then had to give a performance with Michelle Dockery delivering the lines, because also the two of you have to be very, um, you know, connected in terms of the timing and and all of that. So it's like you literally have to be delivering your performance on very specific beats as she's saying the lines. And yet you're not able to just stand there and look at each other's faces in those moments. And so how did the two of you rehearse or kind of figure out the nuance of what that was going to take to put that together? Um, well, we we had to get it wrong a lot initially, so we kind of just let that space exist and just got it wrong, <laughs> which was quite fun. Um, and then I remember thinking, God, if I could have anybody's voice when I opened my mouth and nothing came out of my mouth, and if I could pick anybody's voice, it'd probably be Michelle's as Lady Mary's. So nice. And so I remember thinking, oh yeah, it's great. I just I just will always use Michelle's voice in every film I ever do. It's great. <laughs> I love it. And um and then and then um well, yeah, I mean, we technically we did rehearse the timing of it because we did have, but it was okay in the beginning because we were getting it wrong. And then as we moved through, technically we were rehearsing how to do it in time. Um, and and as you say, not looking at each other. So just knowing the rhythm, it was more just a melody and a rhythm that we were kind of, we got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and Myrna becomes someone who, you know, develops a very quick reputation within the house because of how she treats people, how she speaks to people, the way that she's quite demanding of things. Um, But when you step back, you do see through the progression of the story that it really is coming from such a place of fear. It's if I create this environment, nobody's going to look deeper. Nobody's going to ask the deeper questions of everything that you've been talking about in terms of the you know, internal nerves and kind of knowing that her career potentially could fall apart at any time. And then we get to see in real time, you know, that moment and that inflection in the story. Um, And so how did you want to create that kind of directive that she's giving to people, the way that she's kind of owning the space, but also knowing that it's coming from a very fragile space inside? Yeah, I mean, it was great because that scene with Daisy and Anna towards the end when she reveals how terrified she's been and what she's been through was a real like there was that that was a moment that I always thought about and that informed everything running up running up to that moment um just just in I mean the the fear had to exist from the beginning so and fear can translate into so many different things but with her it translated into being rude, obnoxious, demanding, and all the things that we see. So I just, I guess I was just kind of aware of how big the fear felt. And so made the obnoxiousness as big as the, as big as the feeling of the fear. Uh, Maybe not, maybe I wasn't as (laughs) technical as that, but upon reflection, you know, I think that's, that's what I was doing. And then obviously, knowing that we as we came as we as we go through the story there's there is an opportunity to um show the audience why she is the way that she is so as an actor you can kind of be as awful as you want (laughs) You, you can kind of go as far as you want with the obnoxiousness if you do have that payoff moment where people go oh you know we understand it was just you're always fueled by fear and insecurity not that I not that I needed Myrna to be forgiven or that she need, you know, I, I need my character, the character, the women that I play to 
you know, always have that at all. But with this particular character, I was like, yeah, well, we can go there. We can be rude and demanding because in a minute we'll find out why. <laughs> and it'll be okay. I also love that with the costumes for her that it's so much again about just that expression of, of who she is. And it's, it's, you know, this is what she would be wearing because she's on set, she's making a film, she's an actress in the industry, and this is the image that she's projecting. But again, it's also about how she takes up space in a room as, as an individual. So even just, you know, showing up in this turquoise coat, that's a very different color. That's a very different silhouette to what everybody's wearing around her with their particular costume details that really helped you in terms of, absorbing into her as a character or finding particular moments in her trajectory? Oh, definitely. And Anna Robbins and Maya um, and I had lots of conversations about how she hid behind her clothes and that they were such an enormous, you know, presentation. And she really expressed herself through her aesthetic and what she wore and how she wore her hair and the hair dye and the makeup and everything was all about distract distraction. And she wanted to be loved and revered and talked about for the way she looked or needed to be. She needed to be because she knew that everything else was going to let people down or she felt that everything else was going to let people down. Um, so everything about her aesthetic, you know, that's why they have like 20 trunks full of clothes because she, every time she went downstairs and presented herself in front of people, it, there had to be a new, you know, a new look, a new thing for people to be distracted by. Um, so that that amazing icy blue, you know, kind of beautiful coat that just like had, you know, it was kind of sumptuous and looked really expensive. And it, it was a colour that we rarely see in Downton. So it was really unique and stood out. We loved the idea of like, you know, having that coat and with the ice blonde hair and um, and yeah I, I felt I, I was I was really obsessed with the detail of, of the designing of, of Myrna because I, I knew that it was all about it was all about how she perceived you know how she presented herself how she wanted people to see her and that was about her clothes and her hair and her makeup yeah well, you know, th those details are so wonderful and, and everything that you did with your performance made it such a memorable character throughout the film. And I loved everything that you managed to create with that. And thank you so much for, for talking all about it. Really appreciate it, Laura. Oh, thank you. That was quick. That went really fast. Thank you for having me.